Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Oh my goodness, we just had the most amazing interview. Valentina says she's still buzzing. Yeah, I'm freaking out a little bit, not gonna lie, losing it over here. (laughs) We got to speak with Laurel K. Hamilton this morning. It was one of those moments where you can absolutely feel the writerly energy in the room. She had this gorgeous office, just absolutely sunlight filled. She has this adorable, playful cat, Magnus, who was hanging out in the background. You'll hear a little bit of of him. We loved being able to ask this incredibly successful writer about starting out, about how she figures out how to have such a huge cast of characters. We're honored. Yeah, it was awesome. She talked about her series and crafting a series. If you guys don't know, her Nita Blake Vampire Hunter series has 28 published books right now. 28. Such a huge number, guys. So we got to talk to her about that and how she even keeps it all straight. It was amazing. My mind is blown. For those of you who don't know, Laurel K. Hamilton is one of the writers who basically got me started in writing. She put that fire under me. So being able to actually talk to her meant the world. I actually have a tattoo on my bicep. So I didn't get to show her that, which I'm very happy that she did not see because I didn't want her to know. Oh, it is on the inside of my left bicep. It just says Ardour, A-R-D-E-U-R, which is like a major theme in that series. I just, oh... She's amazing. She's just amazing. I cannot sing her praises enough, guys. If you have not read any of her past work, you really should. Uh, A Terrible Fall of Darkness is out now. So go pick it up, whatever books are sold. And if you're one of those writers who doesn't easily fit on a shelf, this episode is for you. Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today we have one of my favorite authors of all time, Laurel K. Hamilton. Laurel is the New York Times bestselling fantasy author and best known for her Anita Blake Vampire Hunter series. She also has her Mary Gentry series that I can't wait to dive into, but we're going to talk about her newest one coming out today. Welcome, Laurel. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be on the show. We are so excited. Can you please tell us the beginning of your story and how you found your agent and your editor? I have an actually unusual story on how I found my agent. I had my first novel completed. I had done, I think, six drafts at that point, six or seven drafts at that point. I went to a local science fiction fantasy convention, and I had actually never been to one. I didn't know they existed. And there was an agent on one of the panels talking about business, writing business. And I ran up to her after and I said, I'm looking for an agent and I know you handle science fiction and fantasy. Would you be interested? And she said, do you have a novel completed? I said, yes, I do. She says, how many drafts have you done? And Mm -hmm. I said, seven. And she said, okay, send it to me. Oh, that's a great question. And I went back home and did another draft and then I sent it to her. And I actually didn't hear back and I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back. I saw her up at a convention that was in Chicago, and I ran past all the writers I had fangirled on the rest of the weekend, dived past them like they weren't there when I saw her. Uh, Again, I said, I sent you my book several months ago. What did you think? And she says, oh, yeah, I want to send it. And she knew what publisher she wanted to start with, and that's how I got my agent. Amazing. 
I really recommend if you write genre to go to the various conventions. I know right now that's problematic. I'll just say it, I'm terrible at query letters. I am terrible at query letters. I have always been terrible at query letters. So everybody says, how do you do that? I said, I have no idea. So I much prefer to see people in person if possible. And the conventions allow you to do that. Can you talk to us a little bit about world building? One thing that I was so impressed with in this book is that you deliver so much information with dialogue and there are no info dumps. <laughs> so how did you learn how to do that? Practice for one thing. So many new writers, they expect to hit it out of the park the first time. Is If it was car driving, you just gotten your license. You don't expect to go to the Indianapolis 500, get in one of the cars and be Mario Andretti. <laughs> So why do people expect when they sit down as a writer the first time, they're going to be good at all of this? How you get better is one thing, by practice. And info dumps are really hard to avoid. I will give you the best advice I have for beginning writers before I got good enough to avoid it altogether. An ignorant character, a character that does not know the world. In the Anita Blake novels early on, I had Larry Kirkland, who was a beginning animator, and she could do the info dump to him. So if you give yourself a character that doesn't know the world and really does need the info dump. It's an easy way for you to do an info dump without having to tell people things they already know about their world. But how did I not do an info dump? Part of it is practice, sadly, and that's just writing it again and again. But the first book of a series for me is 70% garbage and 30% gold. And then you have to rewrite it until it's all gold. You have to think how your characters interact with each other and See if you can have an unusual situation. The hard thing is you have to explain your magic system so that you're not cheating. No pocketing clues. And you have to explain it in such a way that the readers get their information. At the hospital, at the nursing, I had several people that didn't know expertise. The doctors and the nurses know something about the medical that the detectives and police do not. And each one has different abilities. So part of it is your cast. If your cast has different talents and abilities, then they have different things and information they can tell each other. So that's part of it. Zaniel, the main character, is the expert on the angelic. He's also the closest they have to an expert on the demonic on the team. And then you have the lieutenant who is a voodoo priest, and he's the one that senses something bad with his magic. And you have other people that are just psychics. We haven't really talked about their spiritual orientation. So everybody has different things, so they get to come with their different information and talk to each other. It was a diversity of viewpoints of what they sense from any given thing. And then the medical personnel have something else new to say so that you let everybody be their expert in their field so that they can come together. And just like you do in real life, if it's working well. That's so interesting. I realize that in retrospect, now that you're saying it, I did not realize that while I was reading. I will just say this, that this is my 41st novel. And I didn't know that either until recently. It's always a struggle to make sure that you don't have to do the info dump. So you don't have to tell somebody something that they already know. And one of the exercises I did when I was starting out is I tried to think, how would I explain something we take for granted every day in a story where people didn't know about it, but the main character should know about it? How do you explain an elevator to someone who's never seen one, but that your characters would know every day? And I actually did writing practices to try to explain everyday items is if the reader didn't know about them, but that the main characters do so that it's not an info dump and they're not explaining something they should know so they wouldn't do that. I literally would pick things in the real world to try to explain on paper until it was smooth. That is amazing. 
I, I think when I was reading it, I was in awe of how seamless it was. It just felt so smooth. But I felt like I was learning at the same time. I was learning things that needed to be learned by the readers. So when it came time to actually finish the book, I was like, where's the next one? <laughs> I'm making notes on the next one, I swear. One of the things I have done throughout my career is when I first started off writing, most of us start writing in high school or earlier even. I realized that I couldn't do fight scenes. So I decided I would write heroic fantasy at first which is all fight scenes. You have to be really good at it. And just after college, I realized I, my dialogue wasn't good. So I thought, okay, I'll do hard-boiled detective fiction, which is dialogue intensive. The Robert B. Parker Spencer series, especially the early books, the dialogue was one of the places I learned dialogue from. And you can still hear the echo of his dialogue in Anita. And I would set myself the goal of what am I bad at? And then I realized I couldn't do a decent kiss on paper. So I thought, okay, I'll practice till I get that right. So anything I saw as a weakness, I would then force myself to do something that was intensive in that direction. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many writers who are so afraid of having a weakness at all that they just pretend it's not there and then just quietly panic. Oh, yes, me. I'm one of them. I'm who she's referencing. <laughs> you are not alone. Trust me on that. One of my great strengths is a person which I didn't realize until the last few years, is that I am really comfortable being really bad at stuff. I don't mean just in privacy of my own office with paper, literally going out to the gym to learn something. I am absolutely comfortable being terrible at something in public if I know I can get better at it or I can see if I like it and can get better at it. Because everybody's a beginner once. And that's the thing everybody's allowed to be really bad at something. And as a writer, you're not going to be behind the wheel of the car the first time with your license at 16. You're not Mario Andretti or whoever is winning at the Indianapolis 500. And the same thing is true on paper. People put so much pressure to be perfect. I had a sticky note above my computer for years, and it was perfectionism is an unattainable goal with perfectionism spelled wrong deliberately. <laughs> And anytime I got the perfectionistic streak in my head, it was stopping me. I would look up and see that sign. I thought, okay, because you cannot fix pages you have not written. You cannot do another draft. You have to get your rough draft out, however rough it is. And only then can you fix it because writing is rewriting. E.B. White said that decades ago, and it's still true. So I deliberately will go, what am I bad at? What do I need better at? And, and by practicing that, I get better. Sometimes you find out that there are things you're not good at on paper, but you have to try first. Don't just assume it. Of course, you're not good at it if you've never done it before. How yeah. could you be? Oh my God, that is so true. I'm an accountability coach here at the Manuscript Academy. And so I work with writers on their deadlines and setting goals and things like that. But I hear that so much that they're like, oh, I'm just so bad at this. I just don't think I have what it takes. And it's like, you have to actually do it first, though. You know, even when you're a child, you have to crawl before you walk, before you run. So you have to keep yeah. working at these skills. And it's just amazing how we get so stuck in our heads that we don't grasp that, that we have to keep trying. Well, and also you get stuck, as you said earlier, with comfort, what you're comfortable with, especially if you have something successful. And this is my first time writing a male main character in a series. And so many people complain that male writers don't write female characters. I thought, now the shoe's on the other foot. I better step up. And I actually researched and 
talk to my long-suffering husband and every man I was close enough to ask all these weird questions. And I even read some books that I can't say because it will give away other plots on Zaniel's continuing character arc. But I really tried to put myself in the mindset of what it would be to be 6'3". He's a foot taller than me. He chose to be tall. I'm going, <laughs> really? And male and go through the world. And it, I had to really put myself in that place. But had I been one of those people that's afraid to try something new, I would have tried to make it a female main character and keep doing what I do. But I don't want to keep doing the same thing I'm going to do. If I'm going to do that, I'll just write the next Anita book. I like to push myself, and by pushing myself, I get better as a writer. Are you comfortable telling us some of the questions you ask them in your life? Yeah. Okay. The first question sounds silly, but I remember thinking it and going, huh, okay, because of how differently men are built from women, I said to my husband, I said, how do you go upstairs and not hurt yourself? How do you not get something caught as you're going upstairs? And it was a genuine question. It was like, does that ever happen? He says, you get used to it. It's how you're built. So you get used to it, just like you get used to how you're built. But he says, every once in a while, and then you adjust. But no, generally speaking, by the time you get to be an adult, you just don't think about it. And I thought, all right, I'm overthinking this. That was the moment I went, I'm getting too hung up on the fact that he's male and not thinking of him as character, the person of Zaniel first, and then male. It's the same people that said, oh, you write vampire books. And I said, no, I write stories where the characters happen to be vampires, but they're characters first. Once I got out of my way, as writers, you pay attention to people. You just do. And years ago, we had a dear friend who is a 6'3", and he's large, he's attractive, and he's always smiling. And I said, you just always seem to be so cheerful. And I'm naturally gloomy, pessimistic person. And he says, well, I have to be. I said, what do you mean? He says, if I don't smile, people are scared of me. And I said, what, oh. do, you, what do you mean? And he says, walk ahead of me, and I'll stop smiling and watch the difference. And he stopped smiling. And he didn't look mean, he just wasn't smiling. And suddenly women were clutching their purses and trying to get distant, and men were looking nervous. And then he smiled again. And the women smiled back, everyone relaxed. And it was just almost a magical change. And I waited, he caught up to me and he said, if you look like you're having a bad day, people are not automatically afraid of you. If I look like I'm having a bad day, people are afraid of me. I have to look pleasant just so people aren't scared of me. And that was one of the interesting things about writing Zaniel. When he walks into a room at 6'3 and athletic, people assume he can handle an emergency. At 5'3", even if you're in good shape, and especially if you're a woman, you walk in, everybody says it's sexism. I thought it was sexism. And I finally realized that it's something even more ingrained in us. It's not sexism so much as in an emergency, who do you think is going to be able to lift you up and throw you over their shoulder and run to safety with you? The 6'3", athletic-looking guy, or the 5'3", athletic-looking woman, or even the 5'3", man? It's really a size thing. And it was right. so relaxing. Zaniel walks into the rooms, and he doesn't have to prove he's tough. Everyone just mm. assumes he can handle himself. If I gave him the dialogue that Anita Blake has, it, he would sound like a bully. People would be afraid of him. Anita talks tough because she has to prove she is the tough, because if you just look at the packaging, you don't think they're tough. Zaniel, with the same dialogue, would come off as a bully. It was very relaxing to write somebody that didn't have to prove themselves every time they walked into a room. It was kind of soothing and calming. Yeah, I like being in that perspective. It's really nice to not 
have the just low hum of worries that I have every day as a even shorter than you woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes. And it was very interesting to write from that perspective. I've done martial arts for years. I'm usually the only girl in the room a lot of the time. I just put it a different perspective. I'm not going to be as easily insulted. I'm going to go, I know, you look at me and you're not sure that in an emergency I could really step up. And I understand that more than I ever have before, which was interesting. It was interesting thinking about giving different dialogue to your characters and how that shapes them and shapes the perception of the world. It really helped me make the dialogues more individual in this book. It was like an eye-opening experience to think about switching the dialogue on people and how that would change things. What advice do you have for writers with a huge cast of characters like yours? If you can, keep it smaller. I have to say that is hard. It makes your job harder. I'm not going to lie about that. That makes it harder. For me, it seems to be how I think. I wish I didn't. And advice, if you can't make it smaller then make sure they're individual. If you have characters that seem like they're repeating, if you have a character in a scene and you can give their dialogue to other characters and it doesn't matter who said it, then you don't need that character. Or you haven't found that character's voice. Dialogue needs to be intrinsic to the character and you need to find characters that sound different enough so that you know who's talking. And if you don't know who's talking, then either the character needs to be rewritten or the dialogue needs to be rewritten. Years ago, I would do character sheets. And by that, I would write the character and then I would just freeform type and say, please talk to me. Some characters walk on stage and they're themselves. But I find that the characters that don't talk as easily do freeform talking, go, why aren't you talking to me? What's wrong? Do you want to be shorter, taller? Do you want a different job? What aren't you happy with? And... I find that sometimes talking back and forth with them and letting them talk to you, they will tell you what they need. Sometimes, though, character just doesn't work, and you need to cut it or replace it, and you need a different character. Or if it's a really large cast, do you need them all? And if you don't, then it's okay. Save them for another book. I love writing series because if I cut something from one, I can use it later. That's one of the things I've learned. And I have entire folders of ideas and world building that I haven't gotten to use yet. Before a new book, I'll sit there and go, is there anything I need to collect? Anything I didn't do? Can I do it here? Does it work here? So when you cut it, you're a writer. It doesn't mean it's gone. Don't delete it for the love of God. Okay. (laughs) Don't delete it. Make a outtake folder, make an outtake folder. Because one of the things I've learned as a writer is that on a bad day, You're making pages, but in your head, you think it's the worst thing you've ever written. You think, oh my God, this is just crap. If you get up the next day and you read it over, generally speaking, it's good, or at least not bad. And it's just your perception at that time. I've learned not to delete stuff when I'm in a bad headspace, because then later you wish you hadn't. I've learned my lesson. You either put it in an outtakes folder Or you just wait and close the computer up for the day and go get some coffee and go do something that relaxes you. I've written great scenes in terrible headspace, personally, like weeping at the keyboards through something. And nobody can tell. Absolutely nobody can tell. It reads just as well as anything else. And that's the thing you have to know as a writer, that your perception in your head 
sometimes goes so dark, you're not a good judge of your own writing. So please, dear God, don't delete anything in first draft. You can take it out and put it in a separate folder, but don't destroy it. Because every time I do that in a first draft, I need it later, and then I have to recreate it. Wow. Do you hear that, writers? Do not delete it. <laughs> do not delete it. We all do it, but don't do it anymore. Because in a computer, it's so easy. You just highlight it, and then you cut it, and you paste it into a different folder. Every book has what I call the outtakes folder. And when the book is done, and all the drafts are done, anything in the outtakes folder that I didn't use, and I know why it didn't work, then I can delete it. I love that. I hope everyone out there will have an outtakes folder and not delete things. Can you talk a little about how you consistently get yourself into the right headspace to create? Because you have really fast deadlines, I imagine. And so I do. how do you make that work and still feel creative, happy, uplifted, sustainable? I'm a pessimist, so I don't know about the upbeat part. But <laughs> every writer's different because every person's different. But for me, it is hitting my desk at a consistent time. I know for me as a writer, I need to have made some pages in the morning. Even if there was an emergency, you had to take the cat to the vet or something totally disrupt my schedule. If I can get to my desk and write a few pages, and they don't even have to be good pages. I just need to write a few pages and I call it priming the pump. Most people don't even know what I mean by that anymore. But an old hand pump, like a crank pump, you had to pour water in it to get it primed so that you could get water out of your well, which is really frustrating if you don't have water to pour down it to begin with, since that's how you need water. Yeah. But that's still how it worked. And those pages will help me write. This is Magnus. Hi, um, Magnus. <laughs> Hi, Magnus. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> if I miss my morning writing session for pages, then I don't write no matter if I have hours and hours in the afternoon and the rest of the day opens up, if I miss the morning, then I won't. I just know I won't. It's just how it works. And so for me, get up and you write. If you're not in the mood, I literally will sit there and go, I will list all the reasons I can't write today. All the reasons I can't. Like right now, our neighbor is having a huge tree. It is a dead tree. They didn't kill a good tree. It was too close to her house and it's huge. So I understand why they had to take it down. But They've been demolishing that tree next door for days, and it's close enough to my office I can hear it. So you write down what noise is bothering you. The room is too hot. The room is too cold. The scene is stupid. List all the complaints, all the reasons you cannot write today. And I find that within half a page to two pages, you get all the crap out of you, and suddenly you can write. But start, if you're having an uninspired day, you start by saying, this is why I'm not inspired. This is why I can't write today. And it's somehow by getting all the negative out, the muse comes, picks over the shoulder and goes, we can do better than this. I think Ray Bradbury is the one who said, the muse cannot resist a working writer, but the muse must find you working. If your butt is in a chair and your hands are on the keyboard, or I know some people that actually do write longhand, I can't imagine, but they do, however you write, you have to write consistently. You have to get your time at the computer or wherever. You have to put yourself button chair in front of your keyboard consistently because you do not write series books. Maybe you can do short stories with a, a flash of inspiration, but you cannot wait for the perfect conditions to write if you want to be a novelist and make your living 
from writing novels. You cannot wait for inspiration to strike. Jack London said, you don't wait for inspiration, you go after it with a club. And that's true. You set your butt down and you write all the reasons you can't, you're not inspired. And then I find that eventually I get good pages. Or sometimes I get two pages of crap, but at least I've got my pages. Somehow that unclogs the logjam, and later in the afternoon, if I have a chance, I can sit down and actually write. If I don't get the crap out earlier in the day, then the day is done. Now, sometimes the muse is singing, and I sit down right away. I actually find, unfortunately, that I need four hours of uninterrupted time, ideally, because the two hours that start it, unless the book is going really well, the first two hours I get almost nothing. My pages are in the second two hours. The trouble is... I have to get the two hours of not working to get the two hours of working. It's like the first draft. You have to write some garbage that you can rewrite later. So you sit down and you go, okay. You don't sit down and go, I will be inspired now. You sit down and you go, okay, we're going to write. What is writing? You put your fingers on the keyboard and you write something. And the A Terrible Fall of Angels is an exception to that because I had the first line. Most of the time I begin by going, how do we begin? That is always the question. That is literally the first line of every draft is, how do we begin? That is always the question. And some days you get in your way. How do you get out of your way? You get out of your way by going, today is a bad day, but that's okay. Tomorrow will be better. And give yourself permission to write garbage. Give yourself permission to be really bad on paper. No one will ever see it, guys. No one will ever see it. You can delete it later after the book is finished. It's okay to not be perfect. My very first novel, Nightseer, one of the things I would do is I'd print out at the end of every day, even though you don't have to, because seeing those pages accumulating beside my computer let me feel like I was actually writing a book. If it's just on screen, it doesn't seem quite real sometimes. Yeah. And one of the things is on the first draft, do not stop to research. Let me say that again. Do not stop to research. You're writing along and you go, what does 15th century underwear look like? You're trying to get your character <laughs> dressed or undressed. What does 15th century underwear look like? Now, it used to be that you had to take time to go to the library to research that. Now it's even more insidious because you can stop, get online, and start researching that. And that is a rabbit hole. Do not go down the rabbit hole. Just put in huge caps, just what does 15th century underwear look like? And then go, because you really don't need to know that minute. Just say, they get undressed for the night. There, you're done. You don't need to know. Pick a word that is not in your book. Pick a word that is not in your book, like rutabaga or something ridiculous, something hippopotamus, anything that will never be in your book and you're not going to use. Pick that word and put it by your notes that you want to fill in because then you just do a search for that one word and it takes you to all your notes. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. And I'm doing that. <laughs> it, it, is, it is an absolutely brilliant thing. It helped me so much because then you don't have to hunt and peck and hunt for them all. You just hunt for that word and then you're done. Second draft, you fill in your research. Then you have permission on the second draft to go down the rabbit hole and figure out everything. But do not do all your research online. Do not do all your research online on websites. You have to use other people's books research. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Do not use other people's fiction as your only research. Yeah, that makes sense. 
because how do you know how good their research is? And the second point is, if you only use other people's fiction as your research, if you write fantasy and science fiction, then how are you ever going to come up with a unique and new idea? If you read science fiction, you need to read real science. For me, for doing shapeshifters, I read up on the real animal as much as possible. And any time you can add reality to your fantasy, your fantastic, you should, because it makes it stronger, better, and people are more likely to believe it. I now have a stack of angel books and lives of the saints taller than my waist after writing A Terrible Fall of Angels. And I learned so much that I would never have learned had I not done the deep dive of researching that. Like the fact that not everybody agrees on which angels are fallen and which angels aren't, which I wouldn't have known that. So second draft is research. You just go and fill in your holes. Third draft is where you begin to polish the writing. I love that. I have a question about series. So Anita Blake has in a million books, I think, I believe 28 published now that are currently yes. out. Did you plan for it to be that long? No, I had the tentative plans for 13 book plot lines, mystery plots. No, in fact, my very first novel, Nightseer, was supposed to be one of a four book series and it didn't sell well enough. They didn't want the second in the series. And so when I wrote Guilty Pleasures and it finally sold, let me just say, remember, this was back in the late 1980s when it was trying to be sold. And so there were more publishers back then. And Guilty Pleasures was rejected over 200 times before it sold. Wow. Over wow. 200 times before it sold. Remember, there was no paranormal. There was just mixed genre and it didn't sell. That Everybody knew it wouldn't sell. It really was horror. It really was alternate history. It really was mystery. It really was all these genres. And so... We sent it to different houses, and it was rejected over 200 times. When it was finally bought, they gave me a three-book contract, and I remember how excited I was because I remember thinking, there'll be at least three books. <laughs> I was so excited because there'd be at least three books. And every contract after that has been three books at a time. And I still haven't used all the 13 original plots because each book gives me new plot ideas. And some of them I can't use because characters made other choices. Some of the characters that didn't pan out. But no, I hoped for longevity, but how can you possibly know that you'll be able to be 28 books out in a series and I'm writing book 29? You can't plan for that. People ask, did you plan on being a number one New York Times bestseller? Of course not. That's ridiculous. No, I wanted to make enough money to support myself and my daughter. That was my original idea. No, anybody who says they planned that, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> if it could be planned, wouldn't everyone do it? If it could be planned, everyone would do it, right? But no, I had no idea that there would be this many needed books. And I did plan for Longevity the series because I, I knew it would be a series. And I started reading long-running series. If you want to really read books where there's 20 or more in, you have to go to mystery. It's very rare for a fantasy series to go 20-plus books. So I read a lot of the series that are over 20 books. And what I noticed is between book five and book eight, there's a slump, almost inevitably. The books are darker, or they're not as fun, or the plots aren't as strong. It's like the writer becomes disenchanted with their own world. And then if they're lucky, they pick back up after that, and you can see a renewed energy. But some writers, they continue to write series that are popular, but they're not in love with it anymore. And it can still make them a great deal of money, but they're not happy. They're not creatively happy. So I thought, how can I avoid that slump? 
I thought, I don't want to be a straight mystery. If I'm just a mystery, then I think that won't be enough to keep my interest. And I've always loved monster movies. I've always loved uh, everything goes bump the night ghost stories. So I thought, okay, I'll combine that. And the fact that I combined that and that nobody else was doing that and nobody had succeeded at doing that, that's why it was rejected over 200 times because everybody said it wouldn't work. There's no way for this to sell. There's no audience for it. I love the fact that now it's this whole genre, urban fantasy and paranormal. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely thank you. Definitely. You're very welcome. So I gave myself enough toys that I am still having a great time. I'm still learning new things about my world, my characters. And I did the same thing with the Mary Gentry series. It had an overarching story arc more than Anita does. So Anita's books are each a mystery. It's more separate, even though there's character growth. Mary really was a character arc, a story arc more so. And I didn't know that when I got to book seven. I didn't realize that, that what I was doing. And that's where we got Divine Misdemeanors. That's why it's a much more a mystery. I still was thinking of Mary organizing it more like Anita. I didn't realize that it was organized differently, even while I was writing it, until retrospect looking back. It's so interesting, all of the things you've said about genre. And I know there's always this pressure to be like, but what shelf does it go on? <laughs> even if it's a digital shelf. Can you talk a little bit about that? Once upon a time in the industry where you got shelved in the bookstores originally, I was put in horror back when there was still a horror section. My books are still shelved most of the time in horror and science fiction and fantasy. I'm there. And for the longest time, that's where I was. And that's where you found me. Now I'm hearing that more bookstores are putting them in mystery some are putting them in romance, and the Mary Gentry series can be shelved in romance. You can genuinely shelve that in romance. Some of the Anita books can be shelved there. Some of them, if what you're wanting is romance, and it's a police procedural, or it's, it's a serial killer crime, or it's something else, I can understand why the romance readers be going, why is this here? I jump genres in still more than most writers do. Most writers, as you said earlier, they get comfortable. And then each book will be more of the same. But one of the ways that I keep the books fresh and me engaged and the readers engaged is that different things happen. It's not a formula. Each book is organically its own. It is frustrating, though, because I know that a lot of the young adult readers, they found writers in romance and they don't go to the science fiction fantasy. So I'm having people that skip to me or they're not as familiar with me and I'm going it's because of where I'm shelved it really does make a difference so interestingly on Amazon one of my people was sending me you know, screenshots of it because I have to not get on stuff and pay attention to that this book A Terrible Fall Angels for the first time I was number two in police procedural some of the Anita books Sucker Punch especially is a police procedural but I've never been there that's not where I'm digitally shelved but Zaniel breaking into police procedural but ironically, he was also like second or third on vampire mysteries, and there are no vampires in this book. <laughs> but people see my name, and they just assume mm -hmm. there has to be a vampire in there somewhere. It does matter where you're shelved. It matters. If you were a new writer and you didn't have your audience, it would make it harder to gather your audience, depending on where you're shelved. But I still love the fact that multiple bookstores put me in multiple places so that they understand that mystery readers love me and horror readers love me, and romance readers love me, and fantasy readers, that I have a very diverse audience. But for years, they really weren't allowed in bookstores. There were set rules, and whatever was on the spine of your book, you were stuck with. I want to ask about the angels in A, a Terrible Fall of Angels. How did you go about 
finding the line because you know a lot of people who read your books are going to come from different religious backgrounds was there a line that you had in your mind of where you didn't want to cross into no honestly you can't sit there and self-editorialize don't take the world in with you close your door to your office and be yourself but i'm respectful of other people's religious faith but most people don't realize that the angels are the same angels Christian, Judaism, and Islam, same angels. And I, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Same angels. Some of the older mentions of flying messengers from deity. Angels have been around a very long time. And the angels don't pick sides. They aren't a particular faith. The people at the College of Angels that have never left the College of Angels, they see it as good and evil, black and white, if you're not with them. But the angels don't care. The angels just want you to be a good person and to have the best life you can, and to be good to other people. That's what they want. For me, I'm Wiccan. It's do as thou wilt, so long as you hurt none. That filter means also yourself. Make a choice to hurt other people, but you also can't hurt yourself. Every choice needs to go through that filter. Angels are pretty universal. Most faiths have them in some way or the other, and most people will believe in angels, even if they aren't sure about what deity they believe in or what faith they are. Angels are actually not a hot button for most people and usually not going to offend people. But I didn't think about that because I'm creating my own magic system. Yes, I researched real angelic lore, but then you take with your research and you're jumping off point into your magic system so that it's based on real research and then you take it that one step further or that step sideways. It didn't occur to me that I would offend people because... One, if anything we've learned in the last few years, you're going to offend someone. Just take a breath. There's no way to avoid everybody. Because if somebody wants to be offended, they will be. And that's just the truth, sadly. But you can't take that filter of worrying about everybody. I hear from writers that they worry what their families will say if they read their book, what the world will say if they read their book. And what I say to you is, If you take that level of burden into your creativity with you, especially first draft, that'll clip your wings. That will clip your muse's wings right there. When you are alone with your writing, you must put that aside. You must put that aside because if you don't, how can you possibly create something new and unique if you're worried all the time that you're going to offend somebody? I love your description of these beings that just want us to be good. I think that's a really nice thought. We'd love to give away three copies of your book. Could you give us a keyword that people could email us and the first three will get a copy from us? We could do seraphim. Okay, yes. So the first three people to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with seraphim in the subject line will receive a copy of this wonderful book. I can't thank you enough. It's so wonderful. I can feel your writerly presence through the screen. (laughs) And my goodness, your office is so gorgeous. All that light and your cute cat and... Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. I was lucky enough to get to help design it myself, and it's based partially on a writer's studio. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. It was lovely (laughs) talking to you, and good luck to all of you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. 
And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.